0: the very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how can change the world okay. okay. state of things in of violence without object and This is the typical violence of violent because what happens uh, is the murder of the, real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
1: Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I do want to mention that I have a Patreon at www.patreon.com. Forward slash m u h h and I'm hoping to have another 43 to 40 patrons by the end of the year, uh, just so I can effectively um, at least not lose money producing the podcast. So if you're enjoying it, uh, definitely you know feel free to th- throw th- throw us a dollar a month or something like that. This is another movie episode. I have Lewis and Nick returning co-hosts of the Proletarian Conchurian podcast. But uh, welcome back, fellas. Good to be Thanks. Hey, Glad to be back. Thanks, Coop. Hell yeah. So I don't know if you guys want to do a brief intro to just in case listeners are unfamiliar with your show.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Lewis, why don't you do that?
2: <laughs> ah! <laughs> yeah, well, no, I think that's right. I think the first time I did it, the second time you did it. So I think it makes sense. this third time I should do it. <laughs> oh, sure. um, yeah. Proletarian Contrarian. We've been doing this podcast for about two years now. Um, we review Jesus. shitty uh-huh. movies, um, exclusively shitty movies. from a a leftist perspective. Um, Right now we're in the midst of uh, John Carpenter month, uh, looking at uh, uh, some of his uh,
0: shittier fare. Yeah, we always try to put a little bit of a leftist spin on it in any of our movies. I'm sure that just comes out um, regardless. We we also have um, another guest month planned for this coming September. Um, That's September 2020 for those listening to this in posterity. But yeah, no, we're just a leftist crappy movie podcast. But it's always nice to be on Coop's show because we actually get to watch a good movie for a chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's that good though because I've had, your pace.
1: I've had y'all like the most of the movies we've done, I think, with the exception of last year at Marion Bad, have been good, but like maybe either not perfect or there is some like disagreement and the critic the critical reviews or opinions.
0: Yeah, sure. Um the console are definitely um yeah, scientist. that's really I think that I think this movie that we're going to talk about it's a bit of a safer choice, but it still isn't as universally yeah. kind of acclaimed as Marion Bed* for sure. And, right, uh,
2: and probably not as widely you know seen. seen or, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely people know about it, but you know I don't know how
1: many people go back uh, to watch this film. Right. If if you were like, I remember I saw this film because. I, this was back when the store Hastings was a thing, which was like a, a brick and mortar, like DVD music book kind of place. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had basically, so this was like, when I was a freshman in college. So this was like 2001, they had a double pack and it was Requiem for a Dream and this movie. So That's I probably, nice. <laughs> it's a hell of a
2: double feature. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: So I probably wouldn't have watched this movie if it hadn't come in that double, in that if it hadn't been sold like that, interestingly oh, interesting. enough. So, yeah. yeah, should we say what the movie is? Yeah, yeah we should probably say what the movie <laughs> is. The movie is Pi, uh, written and directed by Darren Aronofsky, his actually his debut uh, feature film. And then, uh, Nick, do you want to do a plot synopsis? You're usually pretty good at those, but yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can do, do a do quick, it. quick rundown. Yeah. Um,
0: so it's, it's Kind of built as a psychological thriller. Um, the protagonist is this mathematician who's clearly very talented, but clearly not emotionally well. Why that is, we can get into it a little bit more down, down the line in, on our discussion here. But he is trying to plot the, the trajectory of the stock market, essentially. That That's his, um, I, I guess, like his, his motivation and his quest here in the movie. And of course, in, in the course of doing so, he attracts interest from capitalist and religious forces. Um, it it kind of delves into like the Kabbalistic meaning and mysticism behind numbers and what numbers mean. And his, his Jewish identity is um, very prominent in um, his motivation and his, in the resistance that he gets from outside forces. And yeah, just his, just a, a lot of it's very character driven. It's, it's why, or not why, but it, it, it examines the emotional travails that that this character max cohen goes through in like how his interpretation of numbers and significance of numbers impact his own daily life and yeah i mean i don't want to spoil the ending before we get there he does achieve some kind of catharsis by the end
1: just to kind of go over some of the um kind of the nuts and bolts in terms of like the dp was matthew libautique the kind of the so the film is starring sean gallette who i think was a college friend of of aronofsky's Mm -hmm. and then mark margolis is probably the second either second lead or or what have you, but he's quite good. Yes. He's one of the most prominent. Those are like our two, and I guess Lenny, the um, the, the Hasid.
0: The, the annoying Hasid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those are kind of like our three main players that get the most screen time.
0: Yeah, also to some extent, um, I mean, definitely secondary characters, but Max is uh, neighbors in the building. Yeah. They're also um, this Wall Street firm representative right. that kind of harangues him. Right. But yeah, no, that... Margolis is great in this.
1: Oh, yeah, he's fantastic. Budget-wise, at least on the original budget, all shot for 60K roughly, which is fucking incredible. Yeah. shot in 96, so I would say even you double that budget um, in terms of the, you know, whatever inflation rate to 120, still, which is a lot of money, obviously, for, like, anyone, but when it comes to filmmaking, that's, like, a drop in the bucket. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you think like a a well-off family of four makes that in like a yeah. year, and like that. Right. You you make a movie off that. That's a way to contextualize it for me with with these like sums that seem a lot of money to me personally. But yeah. In the terms of like a production for a feature is not much.
1: Was it? I forget what movie it was, but there was another one that was shot for like a million that we discussed.
0: Uh, me and you.
1: I can't. Re- I can't remember what movie it was. It, it may have even been just the counselor on that was like super cheap. The you counselor was fairly cheap. I mean,
2: yeah. it was something like 15 to 16 million, which is fairly low for a film with, you know, yeah. as, as, as big name, name actors. With yeah. Brad
0: Pitt, Fassbender, all those names.
2: Right. You know? Anyways. But yeah, so then uh, the post-production costs were another sixty k for this film, and uh, you can read it all on Wikipedia. There's kind of the breakdown of you know why it cost this much, and it was a lot of it was. Um, you know, the actual processing of the film yes. stock because they shot this on 16 millimeter, a black and white reversal film and they had to send it to a lab in Arlington, Virginia, which is the <laughs> only lab at the time that could do it. Um, you know, this is... Uh, yeah, this is just one of the, the, the that, and that's you know kind of a hallmark of uh, you know indie filmmaking um, that starts to go away a little bit um, yeah. right after this. Yeah, because indie filmmaking now, like you're going to be shooting on digital more than likely. It's right and way certain, cheaper.
0: And to a certain extent, there's movies. Um, this movie's like Tangerine. Which I haven't seen, but the, that was like shot entirely on iPhone. Right. Um, and and that makes it more accessible to a lot of people. Like. Who just won't have access to making any kind of film like even if it's a tick tock thing or all the way up to something like pi but um i mean on the other hand like part of what i really liked about this movie so much was was the the aesthetic was the the intensely grainy like monochromatic look of it so yeah it, it is kind of it, it is kind of a disappointment that like mid-tier films especially after covid certainly like are just kind of disappearing
1: i mean even like, before like, that not like, like, just mid-budget no for sure but even like. We i mentioned this i think in a couple episodes with both of you that like that kind of, things in the range of like that 25 to 50 million dollar film like a michael clayton are not getting right. made anymore at all.
0: Right. yeah i mean who knows what this quarantine is going to look like for the future of oh, film. Right. like a film essentially doesn't exist for the year 2020 <laughs> um, <laughs> at least traditional film production as people come to have come to understand it but um yeah i, I don't know like maybe maybe the relative the dearth of like big budget releases this year will open up people's like more homegrown grassroots kind of art style. Maybe not necessarily like a return to this kind of production when there's quarantine, but something comparable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it has more to do with like the, just it's the economics of the industry with the consolidation and people are less willing to take risks for sure on, you know, that's why we have all the fucking, you know, the franchise stuff, the franchise right. IP stuff that has a built-in audience just yeah. dominates. It's a safer bet since everything's been so like intensely financialized.
2: Yeah. It's a risk averse uh, you know, uh,
1: a flop, you know, yeah, like Waterworld, you know, like, I mean, that's like stunning example, but yeah, it really but- does show like new material is it can be risky. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, and it starts kind of with the industry um, in the 80s, where with a film like uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which, you know, really, I mean, took a nosedive upon uh, its theatrical release and kind of is considered the end of, you know, the new Hollywood era of the late 60s and, and 70s. Um, and then, you know, you get. Yeah, films like uh, Waterworld or, you know, the uh, Postman, uh, another Kevin uh, oh, yeah. Costner <laughs> film. And, uh, you know, the, these these more out there ideas that studios take a gamble on and they don't do really well in theaters. And, you know, sometimes they just don't do well because marketing, you know. So the studios are fucking yeah. stupid. They yeah. don't even know how to market films half the time. Right, um, right. You know, not even to say if, whether or not the films are good themselves, but, um you yeah. Know.
1: <laughs> I mean, hell, like it. I feel like was it the counselor had a weird market marketing angle to it, right?
0: Yeah, I, I think we we looked up this a little bit, but there there was something just like I don't even remember that film being marketed that heavily, and like I do remember films like No Country was marketed like heavily. Yeah, and that definitely that that was one of the reasons I saw that. Like before, I was super into film. I, I saw Old Country, like No Country for Old Men, because it was marketed as like this intense. I mean. That term psychological thriller is kind of really wide, but it was marketed as that marketed as like this. Yeah. Oh, it's the Cohens and everything, and then in comparison, you have this other same material and it actually has this Karma McCarthy involvement, and it just kind yeah. of dissipated. Right,
2: and it's Ridley Scott. You know, it's like it's it's yeah. uh, <laughs> it's it's a known auteur, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's who knows why? I mean, you know, even No Country wasn't a big budget film. I, I don't know the exact number, but I can't imagine it cost you know more than 60 million to make yeah. that
1: movie. Probably half that, I would think Right back to this movie <laughs> back to pie. right uh, One kind of cool thing is that this was Clint Mansell's first score who has been ever since he's done the scores for all of Aronofsky's movies that I'm aware of and which are always fucking fantastic. And I think really like yeah. Requiem probably is the most notable of those yeah that um or the one that
0: people know about music that pounds over the um like the the climactic kind of um like montage of everything that, that's super popular that, yeah that has certainly transcended that movie
1: you can kind of see that yeah them playing with that same aesthetic here quite a bit
0: yeah and there was some there are some really big big name artists i don't i, I think they were smaller at the time but yeah. like um apex twin massive attack are on this soundtrack and um the soundtrack, in particular, definitely like exemplified this. But this whole movie is more fast-paced than I thought it would be. Yeah. I was assuming it'd be more kind of slow and meditative, but um, nope. Just even open up the, the <laughs> DVD soundtrack DVD menu, the soundtrack just like <laughs> kicks you in the ass.
1: It was a tight ninety, but it felt it felt longer to me. Yeah, for sure. It felt like a two-hour movie. And not there's so
0: much in it,
2: you know. Like it yeah. just it crams so much into that. You know, I think it's actually eighty-five minutes. Yeah, something like that
0: yeah and it doesn't feel longer in the sense that like it feels slow it just feels like you've been through yeah there's so much it's dense
1: it's dense as fuck I guess before we jump into my like kind of usual little rubric of acting editing writing cinematography etc what are people what are you guys whoever wants to go first like what's your overall like did you like the film first time seeing it how many times have you seen it give us like your general thoughts
0: I I did like it this is so petty but like before I started watching Aronofsky movies, actually with, with you, Coop, we watched this and then we watched yeah.
1: Tree of Life. Like, I was no, kinda... it was uh, The Fountain. Oh, i sorry, The yeah. Fountain, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess <laughs> so it was the second, second Aronofsky movie that I've done. The pod second that i've done with, with me yeah
0: but yeah no i i was kind of predisposed to disliking him just i think like a girl i had an unrequited crush on really liked him and like i i had this like <laughs> <laughs> had this, like, that, like very unfair prejudice against him but um but no i i i'm just finding myself liking his stuff everything i see like i had obviously seen requiem before this or at least parts of it but um actually watching like a his other movies start to finish um he has a lot of stuff that he incorporates into all these movies and Pi particularly um, that I find myself really liking just like this intersection of religion and the way that it has become so enmeshed in like the social fabrics of other things that it, it, it isn't even this spiritual edifice anymore. It's just like a part of life. Whatever. whatever I'll get, we'll get yeah. to that in the, um, in the inbox, in the recap here, but um, no, I liked it. It, it was stylized without, the whole point of the movie isn't just the stylization; isn't just the aesthetic. Um, the the stylization complements the other yes. stuff that's going on. In Very the well, I think. Yeah, and and that that's what's most important for me because I I like a stylized movie, but there has to be a reason for it. Yeah, and there's definitely a reason for it here.
2: Uh, I've seen Pi before. I think I've seen all of his films except his newest film, Mother. Uh, I'll probably check that one out soon. But uh, yeah, um, it's this is a great you know debut film. Uh, I always love first features for uh, for uh, you know uh, directors who now we kind of consider um, in the in the pantheon, and it's crazy to think he only has like seven or eight movies mother was two years ago I think I just I always think of him as a more prolific director he just kind of yeah. feels like someone um, who's kind of always active and I guess he he does a lot of producing roles as as well it's an incredible first feature and it, and it makes sense that he gets like you know Requiem for a Dream after this with some really big names I mean Ellen Burstein Jared Leto uh jennifer connelly uh marlon wayne's yeah marlon <laughs> wayne's i mean it's just an incredible keith cast. david keith david yes. right i mean yeah um so i just i hope he gets to make more films because i know mother did not do well but you know a lot yeah. of his films i don't think noah did really well either yeah. at the box office so
0: yeah he's um he definitely has the art house reputation kind of like
1: big budget amc art house if that makes sense yeah so
0: that's kind of how i
1: I think stuff. he literally went, no, not the AMC. What's the, there's a, the film. Oh, like, AFI? AFI. That's I think right. he did. Yeah, he's yeah. an yeah. AFI alum for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he went to Harvard and I think that's where he met Sean Goulet. And yeah, then I believe he, he, he went right. to AFI because he was originally, uh, I think, an anthropology major at Harvard.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, it makes you know, a lot of, you know. of sense with this film this film and just like yeah his interest in like just religion as as a lived thing like this living thing alongside people his dad
1: i think was an anthropologist maybe yeah or something something along those lines which i think led into it and i think plus aronofsky's jewish background as well growing up in new york city etc but this film i had seen i think i had only seen it once previously and I remember, like, the two scenes stood out in my memory. Like, I still remember them from, like, 2001 to this day are the scenes with with Max are played by Sean and Mark Margolis's character, Saul, where he's, number one, like, the story of Archimedes taking a bath. That scene was probably my favorite in the whole, in the movie. But that one, like, remembered clearly from, like, 20 years ago. And then the other scene later where they're kind of discussing... How or Saul's going to be talking about how you'll see this pattern in nature. Like whenever you're, you'll see this pattern everywhere. When you have an obsession going, like you're going to, it's going to pop up. You know what I mean? You're going to be like, that's what your mind does effectively. Is this sort of, sort of the way our consciousness works? Is this almost delusional fiction to some degree that like, yes, it has some like input from the outside world, but it's a very curated amount of data that we're like experiencing subjectively, let's say. The film is, gets a lot of criticism for being pretentious and kind of very student film-esque, which I mean, I think is relatively, yeah, some of that's in there. There are a little, there are some cringe elements to the film, but for 1997 on this budget, I mean, damn, (laughs) wow, that's incredible ingenuity just insane amount of ingenuity to pull off something that's this compelling on this little money without, you know, I mean, the biggest actor is Mark Margolis. Yeah, he was in Breaking Bad like 20 years later, but at the time he was, he may have done like what he was in. uh, A
0: small non-speaking role in Scarface. Yeah, he's in
1: Scarface. He's
0: the guy who kills Scarface actually. Yeah,
1: exactly. He was in like, he was the landlord in Ace Ventura, pet detective oh yeah <laughs> yeah
0: yeah but no he yeah he, he wasn't a big name um
1: I, I character he, actor
0: yeah Breaking Bad definitely is, a character like, actor yeah
2: and then Stephen perlman who plays rabbi cohen's another character yeah. actor as well i mean he'd been on seinfeld and um you know mm. he's in serpico xanadu um but no one would be like oh that's my favorite actor
0: you know Stephen perlman uh, yeah right. right yeah exactly yeah it, it definitely does feel film school-esque but not in a bad way if that makes sense like it it definitely feels um like it the the script and the idea could have been it could have come off as way more pretentious than it actually does i don't know it it feels very earnest which kind of offsets accusations of um of pretension i think yeah um you 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 feel like everyone involved actually just like believes in this project which which goes a long way for me and and making it worthwhile.
1: One of the biggest criticisms of Aronofsky is that he will often sort of beats you over the head with this like art house kind of like messaging or or style, which has some merit and it depends. Like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work as well. I think overall it mostly works here.
2: Yeah, I think it works here. Um, And of the films that I like of his the most, like Black Swan or The Wrestler. um, Yeah, those are less so... Yeah, but um, you know, he 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 definitely wears uh, with this film like he kind of wears it all on his sleeve, right? It's it's there are subtleties, of course, but yeah, I I don't know, I, I'm I'm okay with the, this more like uh, bombastic film that yeah. just you know says it all out in the open, lays all of its cards on the table for you.
0: That aspect also works textually too, because Max Cohen himself is suffering an emotional and mental breakdown throughout the entire movie. So like just right. from the character's perspective, it makes sense that everything would be heavy-handed because he's actually he's literally looking for patterns where there aren't any. Right. Or uh, or where he believes that there are there there shouldn't be any, but he wants there to be and yeah, it, it just it it's just a marriage of um tone and character which which which
1: works. So what I think Aronofsky does better than any other filmmaker that I've ever encountered is he has the or his films often evoke this visceral it's a visceral like physical experience that watching the films that i don't think you frequently see obviously like some of the stuff at requiem is like the most famous you know what i mean sure sure uh, by all accounts mother is definitely oh, that. mother also i have seen it and yes it's like it's physically intense like yeah. it's <laughs> like some of the scenes and the, like the intense frenetic pace stuff that's in here goes to like this it's a similar technique that's mm-hmm. used in mother but it's like going back to like the nth degree <laughs> oh hell yeah
0: i can't i can't wait oh <laughs> that'll man be, that'll, that'll be have to be the the crown achievement of the, yeah the aronofsky podcast trifecta that <laughs> there's
1: <did>. a, <laughs> yeah there's a particular scene in mother or like a sequence that's just fucking viscerally insane and like unbelievable
0: and i think he was dating jennifer lawrence at the time which is hilarious he <laughs> was, <laughs> yes
1: yeah i am hey honey go do this sh- <laughs> and, and Rachel Vites, whenever I think they made um, The Fountain as well, which is funny. Like, The Fountain is oh, – it's, it's been a while since I've seen The Wrestler, so I can't speak to that one. But The Fountain is the only one that doesn't have this feature of this, like, element of viscerally, like, will make your bo- – butt like, you feel the film in your body right. when you're watching it. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a slower film, definitely, mean, as far yeah. as I remember. Oh, no, I think he's talking about The Fountain. It is, I think, in comparison to this and Requiem, those both have that kind of like the editing is very erratic and fast paced, and there's a lot of weird camera angles and shots and and shit that keeps keeps pace. But it's a more methodical film. You have mentioned this uh,
0: many times, it was just just like the sound design in this in this um, movie, and um, there are at least two different sequences where Max is in his apartment and. The ambient sounds of the building around him are just like driving him insane and and uh, we, we get like this just the phone rings and we get this, this ringing and, the, and it, it really makes you feel that visceral kind of repulsion that kind of visceral you're, you're occupying Max's headspace with him. Um, it's just way more effective than anything I've seen recently.
2: Yeah, a lot of that stuff, the, the apartment scenes um, and just the, the fixation on the technology, uh, Aronofsky, uh, and I'm not just blowing this out of my ass, he said this himself, but he, he got a lot of that from uh, the film Tetsuo, The Iron Man, um, which is a Japanese film by uh, Shinya Tsukamoto, um, another, you know, uh, low budget uh, cult film uh, directed by um, and, uh, shot on, you know, black and white, uh, f- film stock, very similar themes, you know, a guy obsessed with technology, crazy shit happens to him. Um, although Tetsuo is more of a, bo- a body horror film. Um, it's, it's, it, it feels more like a Cronenberg film, but, um, yeah. I think the, the interesting thing about Aronofsky is he's definitely a weeb. Like he, <laughs> yes. he, he loves, uh, uh, Shinya Tukamoto's films, and then he's also a big fan of Perfect Blue, yes, which Satoshi is a Kami. lot of um, what uh, he does in Black Swan. Okay. I, I think
0: he he literally purchased the distribution rates for Perfect Blue in America so he could make Black Swan essentially. And, like, <laughs> it, yeah, there, there was something, because I mean, there's a lot of, I haven't seen Black Swan, but there's a lot of overlap with, with perfect blue to the, to the best of my knowledge oh yeah
1: there's a lot
0: yeah yeah for sure yes.
1: <laughs> i have seen black swan i haven't seen perfect blue but i've been wanting to it's yes. been on high it's been up in my mind quite a bit lately yeah because i'm a big fan of paprika that's like one of the i'm oh, not yeah, that, yeah. Yes. yeah my my anime mileage is a bit limited I, I, or exposure I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to convert
0: him it's, it's a long slow process <laughs> uh, but uh but yeah no. know um satoshi kona certainly um up there
1: in terms of yeah. anime dudes, I think we can go ahead and move into the acting for the film. And I think, like I said, oh, yeah. Sean Gallette is our is our lead friend of of Aronofsky's from college. Presumably, does a a really great job. I think um, he has. I mean, some of it I think is aided by the black and white, but like he has this he has this intensity and the ability to call upon this like dramatic intensity and and really sell it. You know what I mean? When he, uh, I think the only time that I kind of break he breaks character or that I found like a little bit cringe was when he was talking to the what was her? I think her name was Marcy was the Wall Street person. Uh,
0: the Wall Street person is
1: no Farouk is the like no I think it's Marcy. Marcy. Yeah, I, I think that's I right. believe it is Mar- yeah, yeah, Marcy
0: Dustin. That's it. Yeah.
1: So he says I'm I'm not interested in petty materialists like you, which was like that was an example of like where this film was very much like student film esque or like. The writing was maybe like the dialogue might have been the weakest link, aside yeah. from the scenes with Margolis and Max or Saul and Max rather.
0: Yeah, there there were some lines. It was like oh, Wikipedia's entry under like interesting mathematical concepts or something. Just like saying like <laughs> like, like, like like explaining what the golden ratio is or something. Yeah, um, and I mean it does its point because like not everyone knows what the golden ratio is or, or the spiral that can come from it, but um. It did, it did feel a little bit like, oh, I'm going to explain this yeah. to the average audience member.
1: But um, So I thought that worked with the rabbi or the Hasid because yes. it was like, because he too was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I've never, I'm not familiar with that. So like that was, I thought that kind of actually played pretty well. But yeah. it was like some of the, and their scenes are really good. It was just some of the other scenes, like maybe the the ending in particular, like butch- the sort of confrontation with yes the rest of the Hasidic Sector, or whatever the case may be like that was a little bit stilted
0: you like you, you can do like introducing concepts like teaching dialogue lines in movies it's just you, it has to be justified within like the things that are going on in the plot um and yeah the the confrontation when he, when he meets that jewish guy for the first time in the diner um that that felt like oh these are both two really awkward guys and of course they're gonna like talk about math stuff to each other and, and try to like one up
1: each other so it, it worked in the flow of the plot you see, I got the impression that he was sort of spying. He was familiar with who Max was yeah. and sought him out. Yes, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. More so yeah, than this being like a chance encounter.
0: It, it, right, yeah, that's is, clear
1: towards the end, right.
0: This character is Lenny Mayer, um,
1: played by Ben schenkman Who was fantastic. He Probably like the third third lead.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he is third, he so. is third, third build here um, on Wikipedia at least. Um,
1: so him, Gallette and Margolis all do fantastic jobs. I think Margolis is by far the best, yes, but uh, yes. Lenny I thought was, was really great too. Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, you know, Max and Lenny, they just have such great chemistry. And then Max and Saul have great chemistry as well. I think they just really, uh, you know, act off yeah. of each other
1: really well. One interesting note when listening to the director's commentary is that, I don't know if you'll remember this scene, but it's one in which Saul is talking to Max about, I think the fish named being named Icarus. Oh, yeah. And he named the fish after Max because he, you know, obviously the story of Icarus is he built the wax wings and flew too close to the sun. And
0: there's um, a symbolic connection there with Max because he, states through the film three times that he stared at the sun
1: too much as a kid and it burned his right. eyes so he literally did look at the sun and it almost killed him but it was no it was okay so i, I fucked up those that was a great scene but the actual the improvised scene was when he was talking about archimedes yes. and he dips he like has this little sort of cylindrical shaped fish tank and he yep. dips his Pinky finger yes. into it to just kind of visual give us a visual of what this sort of Archimedean idea of like displacement and density and that problem that had plagued Archimedes to figure out, okay, the king of, I think it was Athens wanted to know, you know, was this gift that I've received real gold? And he like goes crazy trying to figure out how to determine if it's real gold or not. And then the why his wife tells him, you know, you you need to take a bath, you need and when he gets into the bath, he sees the water level rise, and then that's how he comes up with this idea of being able to use uh, displacement, volume, density, etc., to come to answer and solve solve this thing. And then he runs through the streets yelling "Eureka," etc. But uh, according to Aronofsky, that was a good, that was a like improvisation that Margolis did. And I thought it I don't know something about like his whole physicality. Yeah, and that scene was in particular was really interesting. Um, the way that he does it. I don't know. It has some, there's just something about it. Yeah, no, he really sells that whole monologue. And I think like when a character talks
2: about mythology on film, sometimes it can be, I don't know, like try hard. Awful. Um, it can be awful. It could be really awful. But yeah, I don't know. Margolis just sells the story. He just tells it really well. And and that, and that like you said, that little physicality, I, I remember seeing that. I was like, oh, that's so good. That's great. Um, And that just that little insert shot that they have. it.
1: yeah his voice his sort of accent as well like there's he has a lot i don't know there's what is it uh he's got pre- he has like a certain presence i think in this film and i mean his look as well i think goes to that he just has that i don't know what the what's the word it's like um gravitas yeah gravitas exactly yeah yeah he,
0: uh, yeah he, uh, he looks old here and this was what 20 20- Years he's ago. looked the
1: same for like the last thirty years. Yes. Oh yes. yeah, for sure. He,
0: he looks just like he doesn't break in bed here, which is which
1: is. I mean, hey, who he's? Uh, I guess we should point out he's Hector Salamanca. Yes. So yes. the older gentleman that just rings the bell. The and bell rings. It's funny actually that he has a stroke and that. Oh shit! Oh yeah, that's right. That's how
0: he uh, is first incapacitated and then dies in this movie. Um.
2: His tattoos were interesting. He oh, has like a I have a two hand tattoos. And I don't know if those are real or those were
1: added. I don't know. Those are added. Um, Okay. So in listening to the director's commentary, found out something very – the interesting backstory for Saul is that he was Russian. And because he did not want to be involved with like military implementations of his – like he didn't want to work for the military, he was sent to Siberia. In prison, and that's gotcha. the source of the tattoos. And then, like in the eighties, whenever Glasnost was going on, he emigrated. He was let. He was set free and emigrated to the U.S. and became a professor at Columbia. And that's where he started his work on Pi, investigating into the looking into Pi. That's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah amazing. that was fucking amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's. <laughs> I
0: love when directors or scriptwriters do these elaborate yes. backstories back that never come out. In- right in the actual plot that that's that's the good stuff um
2: yeah i mean you know akira kurosawa had a, a dossier on all seven of the seven samurai uh and they were like you know 30 pages of, of backstory
0: per samurai well guess what i am typing google, google on a new tab right now to <laughs> read afterward on <in> this episode <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice um so we talked about margolis significant um he was fantastic. Probably, I think, my, my favorite actor by far. Steals, steals the movie in a lot of ways. Although, Galette is, is quite good. And then Lenny. And then aside from that, I mean, it's very small roles. Uh, again, I say the rabbi at the end as well. But aside from that, it's like n- nobody's given a lot of meaty dialogue to chew on. It's mostly no. voiceover for Galette. And then the scenes with Margolis are the most dialogue-heavy character driven yeah um well lenny has those two i guess yeah
0: yeah i guess interacting with like the the wall street flunkies that that advances the plot but it's um it's just kind of like yeah mechanical dialogue right there's not much like character yeah for sure stuff there
2: yeah i I mean there's really only like three other characters right i mean there's his landlady and then his neighbor uh, the, little girl the older neighbor and the little girl neighbor, um, and then like there's that there is that one really cringy scene where, uh, he the girl Devi I think her name is like he hears her having sex upstairs. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and, he passes out, and like Devi and the guy she was fucking are like in his apartment
1: because yes. he <laughs> he has a bloody nose. Yeah, no, no. that was that was that was good. That was so. Aronofsky in the director's commentary mentioned that the the intention behind having these, like the sex from the neighbors bleed over was Max is in this kind of state of I don't know, maybe even like he's okay, so he's in like these hallucinatory schizophrenic breaks or what have you Mm -hmm. and it's almost like the Sopranos whenever uh, Tony is getting beckoned into like the the building um, whenever he's like in the kind of Kevin Trinity scenes and you hear Meadows voice is kind of similar. It's like the idea being that this, the like gritty, the sexual, like the physical body element is beckoning like him to get him to turn back to like the, that the physical world, but he's in this other space and he ultimately, when he ever clicks the return button, he's, and that he's like fully immersing himself in that, in that other space away from the physical, like, material, like, base urge, maybe, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely plays to that kind of Descartesian divide between mind and body. Um, But ultimately, I think the movie makes the point, which is what I I think, that there is, if there is such a division between mind and body, it's fluid at best. Um, And these things do bleed over into each other, no matter how hard we try to keep them separate spheres. Also, the thing with the... A little bit of a side note: the the return key, um, <laughs> it looks like a golden triangle with the golden ratio segment. Oh yeah,
1: because it's like oh, a bell yeah. shape thing, mm-hmm. right? That might be a little bit of a reach, but I, I, <laughs> I, think, I think it bears out. I wonder. I wonder. I feel like that's the was that the old style that like Mac keyboards had? Yeah, the, I mean. Th- those are real
0: keys. They're they're on older Mac keyboards yeah. for sure. But um, whether it's intentional or not, I, I did see that shape because I, I was looking for patterns that may or, not, may, <laughs> not, may or may not be there.
1: You will see them everywhere exactly, now. Exactly. You have to take a bath. Yes. Yes. Any other comments on acting for either one of you? Moments that stood out or anything?
0: No. I mean, no. nobody was bad and um, nobody was like, cringier or like quote unquote acting in like a yeah. first feature right. of film which yeah, considering, considering considering this was basically like a high concept student project yeah um, it, it's pretty impressive notable. yeah
2: yeah i think sean golet he's the only one it's like his first film everybody else had been in Um, smaller films or big films like uh, Ben Schenkman who plays Lenny he was in uh, Robert Redford's Quiz Show I mean you know didn't have a big role I'm sure he's someone in the background with maybe one line but uh, yeah it's it's a good blend of like amateur and professional actors
1: I think Galay had only been in Aronofsky did a short I forget what it's called but he had been in that but yeah as far as like legit credits no yeah In terms of the moving on to editing, which I think obviously the sound design is like another character in this film or like another presence or a very strong element and makes up quite a bit of the, helps with the tension and the like atmosphere and the frenetic pace and the editing, et cetera. Like it all works very cohesively. But uh, one thing that Aronofsky also mentioned in the director's commentary was how growing up in New York City, how inspired he was by like hip hop and how he like, actually use that idea of like sampling and collage and recombination, et cetera. And also in, in terms of like refrains, but he like consciously was trying to incorporate that into the film and using a lot of the same shots or like repetitive stuff or samples to kind of like illustrate that. Or like those were the vehicle, those was like the filmic version of like a, a sample in a hip hop song was maybe like this Repetitive shot we get from the closet where max is going into the closet to pull something down and we're getting that sh- So that's a common refrain shot that we're getting. We're also getting frequent shots from behind euclid um, Where typically max is getting he's he's captured in the I guess the whatever the the housing of the cpu for his computer Which is named euclid we're getting those so he aronofsky was saying so there's that element, part of it is an aspect of trying to incorporate like this hip hop aesthetic into the filmmaking, but also like practically whenever you're, you're doing the same, you're reusing a lot of the same shots. This is what helps you make a film like this for only $60,000 being able to reuse a lot of stuff. And so being very economical with your shots for editing and so forth, which I think is just kind of a cool little side note for anyone that is actually interested in directing.
0: Yeah, I mean, establishing visual motifs like that, it it gives you a convenient but very legitimate excuse to reuse shots, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um and yeah, I mean, I, that which isn't I'm not trying to like dismiss it, but um yeah, it the pills in particular um for for Max's character just the the way the these brief terse kind of um 2-second long montages of popping the pill, bottle open, pouring it into his hands, tossing them back. Um, by, the, by the second or third time, you're already used to it. You're used to, like the the flow of it, and it, it would come in like when a hook would come to a song.
1: And you can see that very like that's a clear precursor to the drug scenes in Requiem. Absolutely. Oh yeah, definitely. Absolutely. In terms of style. Yeah. But I'll, yeah, um, I mean,
2: he didn't exactly create you know that idea of quick right. montage, but it is something that we see a lot more after a film like pie and requiem for a dream. We see this repeated by other filmmakers. Um, Edgar hot, Wright does it. A ton. Dead, yes. Yeah. And Shaun of the dead and, and hot fuzz. Um, and it usually is kind of like, yeah, focusing on like hands doing things.
0: And with Edgar Wright in particular, like they're, they're funny in that case. And I think, yeah. I think that, well, but uh, I think that speaks to like how important timing is for comedy yeah. and the fact that, not just comedy, but like to to be something, oh, take this seriously but don't find it goofy, that requires very careful timing too. Oh yeah. Um, j- just just as much as like, oh, find this funny and don't take it like goofy, like like find it funny on my terms. So it's interesting that like I, I think the most impactful uses of this kind of motif would be during comedy and like not tragedy, but like a like seriousness, like an intensity.
1: I'm thinking of those shots from snatch with uh yep. is it mm -hmm, chaz paul not chaz palmentary but no dennis dennis farina Farina, whenever he's like flying whenever he's flying to and to england and back yeah because he like does the shot of espresso or whatever and then like she's on the flight or yeah 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 Yeah. no guy Ritchie does it as well definitely yeah i think a a decent amount of his films oh yeah he does very much there's a lot of similarities their films are very like bombastic with the editing and like camera movement yeah call nick did you um just curious were you were you already thinking of the pill sequences and when i was giving this the information about it this kind of being a an intentional like hip-hop inspired thing element of the film just out of curiosity because that's literally like aronofsky had that he used that example in the director's commentary so just curious well i think if you caught that
0: well i I just think the pill scenes are so it, it's probably the most reme- like memorable in repeated footage. Yeah. It's um, literally comes up throughout the film. I want to say like five or six times. Just um, it kind of separates like different acts of the movie. Yeah,
1: he pointed out too. Like at the end, you'll notice he doesn't take the pills. Yes, right. right. And how that was supposed to be like the there was a gonna that was like designed to be a bit of a like an emotional release. Right.
0: Yeah, and a couple of the times in the movie, he he does use the uh, the injector. I think I don't know what you'd call that the gun that he loads up. Yeah. That's actually like noticeable by its absence.
1: Did you have anything to add Lewis, for editing? Yeah. I mean, just
2: overall it's, it's, um, it's an incredibly well edited film and it's not easy to edit, uh, just in general, but especially, um, Film and then I assume the film was probably digitized. Um, I know they they cut the film with Avid, um, so it's probably fairly early version of uh, Avid film software, and it's 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 difficult. Yeah, I will say I've used a little bit myself,
1: but yeah, I'm not uh, that big of a fan of it myself. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the not my favorite one to use, um, but uh, yeah, it's um, given. What they, you know, had to work with, well, actually they shot like something close to a full day's worth of, sh- of footage is my understanding. Like they had like 23 hours Jesus of footage God. that they shot. Yeah. Um, which is why, you know, the budget is a is, is actually fairly hefty uh, for a, an amateur film, um, you know, close to $120,000 uh, because of just... The, the amount of money to process that film, I think, was something like eighteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, so to get you know from twenty three hours of footage down to uh, a ninety five or eighty five minute movie, I mean, yeah, and it's and for actually it to work and be comprehensive, uh, it's that's pretty masterful.
1: Do we, either of you know? I forget off the top of my head what the average movie shoots in terms of you usually don't have, i don't know if you have it typically in hours but it'll be like maybe the length of the film like oh we shot a mile or like five miles worth the film for this
0: i could honestly see that just varying by director or by by, by
1: budget really
0: yeah, yeah i mean I'm typically sure. <laughs> i'm sure budget is a but like assuming that you could like put it on a gradient scale for budget i, I think it would just it would also vary by just like what it is yeah
2: yeah, I mean, you know, if if you're looking at like an effects heavy movie, you're probably shooting a ton. Um, yeah. you know, something even like I was uh, recently watching the John Wick movies and I was I was uh, watching some of the making-ofs there and and reading some interviews with the director. And I mean, just the the amount of takes you have to do per shot for some of those those action sequences, I mean, it would drive just a normal person mad. I mean, you just have to yeah. do things, you know, a hundred times, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, if you're a director like Clint Eastwood, you only do like one or Pretty two nice takes phenomenal. of anything. Yeah. So, right, yeah. you know, you're usually under budget and under schedule. Uh, so you're not, you're definitely not filming as much.
0: I can speak to this a little bit from the production side, because I've I've worked on, uh, on films with Lewis actually. We and, have, um, yes access in time to like different sets that we would have or like just we, we were working on a pretty limited budget right. um, but like yeah th- those things definitely restricted the number of takes we could do of course but like even accounting for that there would just be sometimes Lewis would have me redo a a, teen, a a scene or a take or something and um, but contrary to that to, to my point about like it just depends upon the production crew involved sometimes Lewis just is like a one take and done right, right? like he'll just go with whatever he happens to have, even if we
1: could take another take. I just know like from the shorts that I've made that, I mean, I couldn't really put a time stamp on like the amount of raw footage, Mm. but like editing wise, I can vary. I can say like, Oh, to make this five minute movie, I, it took me, you know, 15 hours to edit or it took me 18 hours to edit or something like that. So I can get you in that respect which I did think was somewhat cool was, so I think the the voiceover helped out quite a bit here and allowing them to really make the film work ultimately on that budget.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: I mean, that was a huge, huge helping hand to, to making to being able to pull it off and really just kind of a lot of times, or not all the time, but like sometimes you're just shooting and you don't know. So some of this film came together in editing, I think is what I'm, Oh, <laughs> effectively yeah. trying to get towards Definitely. really ultimately just to make that point that you know there was some things didn't work I think he mentioned specifically there was the scene there was a conversation with Marcy Dawson I believe who is the the Wall Street representative right and uh, Aronofsky was just like you know I, I fucked this scene up that we shot so much we were basically able to rescue the scene in editing I was too too worried I was too immersed in like what the camera was doing in the scene and <laughs> some of the acting or like the writing or the acting just didn't work and they just edited around that but just to give like a concrete example of of how that impacts the film pro- production process and editing and so forth and and putting things together but uh, and back to some of the technical elements of the cinematography again Matthew Libatique was our DP um, the film was shot on an eight and80. production camera which shoots 16 millimeter film as well as a bolex h6 h16 camera like lewis mentioned earlier it was shot on black and white reversal film stock which is why you get that just amazing film grain look and it's like the it's almost like some of the scenes resemble like charcoal drawings or like
0: yeah inking
1: in comic books um
0: the dots the the curvy dots the way like the different textures of essentially different shades of gray. Yeah. You can differentiate them by how thick and how tangible the dots are. Um, no, it's, it's super cool. Uh, I, I've never seen, um, what's that David Lynch movie? the Black Eraserhead? Man. Yeah, I've never seen that, but like, just knowing the vibe of Eraserhead, I, I instantly made that connection there too.
1: Which I think was probably an inspiration for this. And I think Lynch was also an AFI conservatory student too, which is kind of the, <laughs> the connective tissue there. And I was actually Lewis, I was showing Nick how much I had was like watching the film again this morning, watching for the director's commentary, and I was like, this fucking reminds me of a comic book. And specifically this is reminding me of the artwork in From Hell. Oh yeah, yeah. Definitely. Which is all black and white as well and has that kind of same like visual style to it.
0: My my first thought um was also Sin City, but um from Hell just works so much more on on a thematic level, like see, like looking for patterns in, in the chaos of like reality and everything.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my understanding is Aronofsky um, is a big fan of Miller, uh, Frank Miller, and uh, he was going to adapt uh, Batman Year One. He was,
0: at, yes, at some point, yeah, yeah. but
1: that fell through. Which sounded
0: um, wild. If you read yeah. the, if you read the <laughs> like
1: ideas that he had, I'm like, fuck, I'm so disappointed that movie didn't get made. It's like
0: Batman, he. The Bat Cave is like a, a chop shop for motorcycles or something it It's something wacky like that, but
1: yeah, the Batmobile was like this crazy modded out like yes. roadster type yes. car, and yeah, it was just these wild ideas that I would love to have seen oh yeah
0: yeah
1: remember- I remember when that sort of news was still like breaking. It was around like two thousand two thousand one or so that. It that was, was still like in the pre-production, or like there were whispers going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, was, it was before yeah. Nolan. Got it was Nolan. yeah, it was well before, and I hadn't barely like discovered Nolan because at this point, I think Memento hadn't was relatively had just dropped it in like two thousand, right around two thousand one.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, that that tracks. I don't, I don't think. He
1: yeah, so I was, he was like barely. Him. I was barely. uh I think he had two. He had done Memento and. Although maybe Batman Begins was the – I mean, Following was the first feature. And then Memento was number two. I think he might have had another something or other under his belt by then. Did he have Insomnia? Was that done by then? I can't remember. Insomnia was like 2002 maybe. It was right around that time.
0: Uh at, yeah, Pro 2002. Con, we're, at Procon we're renowned for our live action research that we do during <laughs> episodes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna show show off right now and, and do that. with uh, me okay, right here for a second. Yes, Memento was two thousand, Insomnia was two thousand two, and then begins was oh five.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, that kind of that timeline fits. But yeah, I'm so interested. Yes, i yes. so, would so love to see what Aronofsky would do with Batman. Like that would be so fucking cool. For sure because i don't know like he has a grittier style than nolan which is funny like in the context yeah, like in the context of like the existing nolan trilogy is known as like this the gritty, gritty right but, but like it, it's, right. not,
0: it's no. I'm, I'm i'm not the biggest fan of christopher nolan it's just like i, I think dark su- superficially dark doesn't necessarily mean gritty where right. Um, right. that's the distinction between nolan and Aronofsky. yeah
2: mm hmm I mean, I like yeah, Nolan's a more like clinical filmmaker. Um, and uh, yeah, Aronofsky. I mean, it's just, you know, Nolan could never make a film like Pie. You know, even his first film following is it's
1: just like the rest of his movies, except I have Black and White. <laughs> I do like The Prestige in particular is one of my favorite all time movies. Memento is definitely up there as well. Those are my two favorites. Everything he's done since sort right. of lacks a bit. Yeah, I don't know. He he just certainly the post dark knight stuff in particular has been just brr.
0: Yeah, he he just strikes me as a very frigid person. Like and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. But just like the way it comes through in his movies like just just like this cal- calculating robot that like makes <laughs> makes films. Like, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, there's an intellectual and philosophical element there that's rich, but I don't know. Just once you yeah. like I feel like after the dark knight, he went Spielberg and left With left the, kind of the auteur stuff behind.
0: And he did his World War II movie on yeah. The Dunkirk.
1: Yeah, which is, like, uh, which is one of the better post-Dark Knight films that he's done. But
0: I just think like on a subject level, it's like, okay, the British guy's can yeah, do a right. World War II movie without yeah. right. Dunkirk.
1: <laughs> Back to this movie, one of the earlier scenes, uh, this may be the, one of the first scenes is where Max goes into the restroom, and what's great about this scene, okay, so the camera placement is within the restroom and we so it's dark and we have of course because of the film stock it's like this inky dark blackness and the door is silhouetted because there's light in the room that max is in max walks directly into the room turns on the light but as he's walking towards the door i don't know there it's just great because you just have this sort of reversal element because the the outside room like the light is coming in it's bright and the super dark room I don't know, the, um, the sh- sort of silhouette of the doorframe and the sort of right-hand side of the shot, I think was it was really dramatic. There was a lot of depth to it, uh, one that I really appreciated. Another shot that I think is kind of funny, I don't know if you either of you caught this, but early on in the film, we see Max walking and there's a bunch of people doing Tai Chi in the park. Yes. yes oh, I remember so. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because okay. he, he lives in Chinatown. In China yes. Nation. Yeah, we, sh- we should... Which is really like, again, that even maybe like another character of the film. And now I want to go off about the <laughs> the aesthetics that I so much love about that. But something funny is, uh, Ernazzi says this is one of his favorite shots in the film and was completely by accident. They're getting out to shoot on the street that morning and people are doing Tai Chi in the film. So, or like in that park. And so they, he talks to the AD or, you know, someone in production is like, hey, can we possibly get this? whatever and so that's how it happened (laughs) that the scene winds up in the movie is just like total happenstance and there's a couple of moments like that throughout the film which i think are just so cool to like give you this insight into the of how things oftentimes can come up totally by accident like catching lightning in a bottle on the set sometimes is just it's a real thing and like sometimes you're just lucky you're just like in the right place at the right time to catch something special and that's
0: the value of doing a lower budget production i think Um, you can have this kind of just like happenstance, just it happens to work out. Um, you can get like random people who essentially become extras, and like you can you can just capture things that aren't meticulously planned. You can you can find some uh, serendipity in the chaos as opposed to the order, <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, and also he's shooting with the Bolex camera, sixteen millimeter Bolex, and they're they're handheld cameras. They're fairly small, um, so it's it's easy to get that uh, you know on the fly footage with something like that. Um, even the other camera he uses, it's it's not a it's not gigantic, but um, you can you can definitely handheld. Um, yeah. I think you have to put it over your shoulder um but uh yeah i know that that shot's great and i also like the shot also in chinatown where like an asian man throws like that yeah like flying bird
1: bird toy yeah yeah yeah. aronofsky recounted that he always wanted one of those birds like he saw those as a kid and his parents would never buy one and so that's like basically why that shot's in the film
0: (laughs) that's that's oh god it's so good that 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 little petulance yeah. that he held on to, to adulthood that's great. That's great. I
1: was hoping there was a story behind
0: that. Good. <laughs> and, and not, not to flog the, the filmmaking adventures of me and Lewis too much, but like um, Lewis, went, there was one uh, shot that we did for our movie um, we made like immediately after graduating college. Um, I was working in the in a retail job in the mall and you had your flip phone and um, we essentially just kind of hit it in the retail location and would just yes. film me interacting with customers, and it was that kind of like unscripted, just like guerrilla, guerrilla shooting. Um For we, real. <laughs> yeah, we, we were able to just get some things that wouldn't be possible if we had like this whole big setup. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was great. We just hid it behind uh, some of like the the t shirts that you sold. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. This uh, this That's small uh, little um, yeah, I forget what I think it's called a flip cam. I think uh, Cisco used to make them. Yeah. As I remember uh, that. essentially the
0: size of like a an android or an iphone yeah um but before android design and iphones were really popular and you you could just like literally you would f- rotate flip the the, <laughs> the, the uh, camera over to face either direction then yeah we just use that yeah
2: no it's um it's great for guerrilla filmmaking and i uh i still have it it works but uh, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah, Cisco doesn't make them anymore, so it's not supported. And um, yeah, just it's an it's an older format too. What it it's 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 a it's a great little camera, but it's it's hard to shoot anything now if you want to upload it. Yeah, same.
1: I have a old I have a sh- camera that shoots on DV tape. And oh, nice. Yep. The problem is I can't get like it. The camera hooks up through FireWire 400, yep. <laughs> and yep. so like I now I I can't get a fucking FireWire. So it's I'm gonna impossible. have to like. Take the footage. I'm gonna have like there are still places, luckily, that have those old tape drives that you can like get footage digitized. But it's just another wrinkle rather than just being able to import your footage.
2: Yeah, no, I shot a whole film on uh, yeah mini DV tapes, a short film, and uh, yeah, I had a firewire cable. I had to <laughs> hook it up, and yeah, meticulously like watch, rewatch it, and in real time. Yeah. It <laughs> in real time. And it was it was it was awful, but um, it's rewarding in the end. <laughs> the
1: Chinatown shots that weren't sped or weren't super frenetic were really gorgeous and i think one aspect of like the area of Chinatown that they were shooting that i love is just the firescapes on the on the buildings yeah. there i don't know there's just it's really cool whenever you like walk through that area of new york um, which i've like luckily randomly had the opportunity to do and i don't know they're just like a a classic kind of new york vibe to it which is really cool and i don't know i just i love those shots some of my favorite which they're like oftentimes they're interspersed editing wise with these like the camera's like zooming around and moving and it's like very off-putting but whenever you have those sort of glimpses of just kind of static clean beautiful little streets of, of Chinatown, it's, it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, bringing that aesthetic, that sensibility to a Batman movie would be, it would have been great. Yes. <laughs> Make me wish for what might have been. Um, yeah, and then like you get things like uh, when he's running through, it's not quite Times Square, but it's like a, a more like commercial, like straight up commercial area than Chinatown. It might have
1: even been Times Square. Because I know in the director's commentary he does mention that it was, right around the period where Giuliani had sort of quote unquote cleaned up New York a bit. Oh, but, right, right. Mm-hmm. So like all, a lot of the porn shop type stuff that had, had been in um, Times Square had sort of gone away, but there was still like, we're still, there was still some, like there were still remnants at least in this time we period. We see one on screen. We Not see, like it is now.
0: Yeah. We, we, we mm-hmm. see kind of like a taxi driver style, like the yeah. like, uh, porno movie theater on, in the background of one scene. Um, but yeah, like when he's running through the nighttime outside chase scene of this movie. It, oh, it's it's very that's fucking amazing shot. He's, yeah. he's literally running through like scaffolding, so it's like he's running through this tunnel. His whole like his whole route that he's that he's dashing down is like surrounded by metal and darkness and everything. Yeah, some of those subway That too, yeah, yeah.
1: Hallways yeah. and catacombs and weird shit is all, are always like kinda cool. Like some parts of the city, depending on where you are or like how big the the uh, like station is can be like I don't know it's like a maze down there and it's I don't know it's interesting like they're kind of cavernous and I don't know it's it's a different experience if you're not from there or not from like the northeast where oh yeah where like subways or metros or trains are like so such a thing
0: yeah I mean to some degree like it it is kind of more exclusive to New York because I'm thinking like in Boston they have um they have the T and there there's some underground areas there for for the T section but it's not nearly as like right like le- like as much as like a labyrinth as the the right. new York city train stations are
1: yeah it's kind of like uh, the metro in dc is very much like some of it's underground but a lot of it's above ground right yeah and it's newer cool. and it's like you know it doesn't have the it's not as old or is i don't know doesn't have the history behind it that the new york subway does yeah right but some of the cool things i learned too and that and this makes sense whenever you like think about it or look at it is um whenever they okay so there will be scenes of max he's outside he's looking at the tree leaves and they will so they sped up the frame rate for the tree leaves versus whenever they cut back to max it's at the normal 24 frames a second okay which also like at the end so most of the time whenever he's observing the tree leaves I think there's at least two or three different scenes in this it's one of those kind of refrains that we see come up a couple of times throughout the film if the leaves if you'll notice they're like very uh, you know they're moving very frenetically and it's because yeah like the frame rate's been sped up but then they'll edit back to Max and Max is shot in 24 frames and then at the end whenever after he's sort of given himself the the trepancy or whatever trepanned right. himself right? Uh, then the frame rate on the leaves goes back to 24 if you'll notice at the end,
0: I now that you've actually said that, yes, I can rub I can, I can see that. No, that's good. Um, yeah, I also don't know how how intentional this was, but a lot of the leaves were like, even though they're attached to the tree still, like they had a lot of holes in the in the right. Yeah, a lot of pinholes
2: in the trees. The yeah, leaves.
0: And it it seemed like it was some kind of pest or some kind of like disease that the tree had. But um, oh, interesting. It, I'm I'm sure it was intentional to some degree because like if Aronofsky wanted a tree with nice full leaves, he could have found a million. (laughs) (laughs) So it was interesting. It had kind of like a spider
1: web um, affect to the the damaged or or dying leaves. Another practical thing that they did was a lot of the sort of headache scenes, Aronofsky said they would use like a, a long lens and they would just like shake the shit out of the camera to get that effect. There's some pretty interesting, just like, I don't know if it's the grain of the film stock or, or what the case may be. But like, I don't know if you remember this scene sort of early on, maybe the first third of the film where it's one of his first episodes where like the door knob in particular starts to like turn. Oh, Eventually mm-hmm. the like door starts to shake, you know, like but there's like a weird, it's almost like if you're on mushrooms and how like patterns kind of like reality kind of like moves around in this sort of like, I don't know. Um, i trying to think of a good visual like, reference point for it, but like the, the outline of the objects are like static, but the patterns within them sort of like gotcha. mm-hmm, yes. get very kaleidoscopic sort yeah, of. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's the most stereotypical drug anecdote of all time, but when I did mushrooms, actually at the same time, <laughs> most, um, I was there. I, <laughs> um, I, I, my, the room I was in, my friend had like a Persian rug on the ground. And like, the, oh, yeah,
1: exactly. The
0: the shape and the dimension of the rug did not change. Right. It, it, I wasn't like seeing things that weren't there and I, w- I wasn't mistaking objects in reality for different sizes right. or whatever. But the patterns, yes. Like,
1: gears were moving. Right. They the, kind of like, happen. they kind of move in these like wave, almost like wa- waves, but like a circular kind of wave. Yes,
0: yes. Um, the fact that there were so many like curving twirls or whatever inside yeah. the Persian. The design of, of this rug um yeah it lent itself very well to like gears moving yeah,
2: yeah. well and, and we see that kind of visual again uh with the coffee and the coffee creamer yes
0: uh that that spiral oh um, yeah and um in the same scene um lenny is smoking a cigarette yes. and the smoke comes out and it curls yeah and, and also which uh, were
1: also very intentional moments
0: uh Saul tells max like literally if you look for spirals anywhere you the whole world <laughs> becomes spirals and um I thought a nice little counterpoint to that, or a nice little companion thing to that was what is immediately outside Max's yes. apartment, but a spiral staircase. Right.
2: Oh, nice. I right. That. That's right.
1: But yeah, you will check him. Like, he'll, if you, you can kind of see him looking at the trees, the moving back and forth, or the, like, the cigarette smoke, the creamer and the coffee are good, also great examples. That is one of my favorite scenes, too. It's like where, who was the Hasid? What was his his character? Uh, Lenny? Oh, yeah, Lenny. Lenny yes. So they get this really good, like, it's he's exhaling the cigarette smoke, but it's, like, very, like, his lips are sort of pursed and, like, this circular. And he's, like, blowing almost like a dragon, sort of this very controlled, like, smoke. And then before that, then, like, they cut to it in the air sort of swirling around. And Aronofsky just talked about how they had to uh, get a lot of... <laughs> they spent a lot of... uh footage just getting the right moments (laughs) of that smoke twirling in the air i can only imagine yeah but back to that door that door thing so that's like an early example of again i don't know if it's maybe a schizophrenic break that he's having where these delusions are creeping into his reality eventually the door pops open like but for that moment there's like it's one of these like old school kind of doors that's like a copper thing with a Mm copper plate and i don't know it just moves around later on in the film too it's like i don't know if you guys noticed this too but it would be like weird patterns and the like this there would be a swirling in the grain of the film at certain points and it looked like ants moving around or like did you catch this at all
0: well I mean, yeah i mean the there's a lot of mileage out of like the the like bug imagery in. in like he, he's always scratching himself a lot. yeah. And like you get the idea he's like covered in like flea bites or something. And, um, and of, of course it's psychosomatic to some degree, I imagine, but like it becomes vis, that, that visceral scratchiness, which is so apparent on the film stock. Like it, it becomes textual when you see like ants crawling over brains like he hallucinates. Or like ants just crawling around his apartment and he, he casually like squishes one before going back to working on his computer or whatever
1: it was, it was really weird too. I was like wondering if it's just like a natural circumstance of, okay, this film was shot on like 16 millimeter film in 97, obviously like the display, like TV technology, you know what I mean? The technology advanced so much to now, like how much of that is just because we have like this very clear, did you know, I'm watching this on Blu-ray, how much of that is just like the technology and how much of it is, was intentional in terms of whenever the film was actually being shot. And that, I'm not a hundred percent sure what's, what's what, because yeah, it was like these, if you go back and watch the movie and maybe it's more clear on the Blu-ray is like, again, like I said, it's like the silhouettes are static. There's nothing going on with the silhouettes, but inside of the lines of the silhouettes of the characters or the, the set pieces um, there's this weird effect going on where there's like, it's kind of waving and, and moving around a little bit.
0: It was, it was weird. Hmm. no i didn't yeah i didn't notice that how did you watch it lewis uh like, amazon it, i guess okay cool. yeah um yeah i mean i think kind of speaking <laughs> to speak into the themes of the of the movie i think it doesn't matter if it was intentional or not um, well yeah true uh but yeah i mean it we we do get a lot of um a lot more obvious examples too like we see when, when max is talking about spirals in nature like we see the, a picture of the milky way and like and um there's a repeated motif of like seashells and the the golden ratio spiral and everything um, and even Saul when he after he passes away when he sets up the Go board
1: the, oh yes yes, yes 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 um, very cool hell yeah he does this a couple of times but he he I think very much is inspired by like Kubrick and in, in some of his aesthetic choices a lot of the like symmetry you'll see um, is really good so there's two really good examples one is in the brain one of the brain scenes you get and it'll do like reverse so one pov the camera is a pov from max's point of view and then the other is like the objective camera and it's you get the like subway steps coming down to the subway platform and he's very like symmetrical in frame which i i don't know it just it looks nice it's got a good pleasing aesthetic to it right um and then we get that reverse – the reverse angle is the subway platform. So you get this really good, like, depth, and you have the metal pylons for, like, the subway right. tunnel that go down. You know what I mean? It's in a pretty lengthy tunnel, yeah. right? So he's got this amazing depth in one element, and he's very symmetrically framed there. And in the reverse shot, when you're looking up the steps to go up to the street, he's also very symmetrically framed.
0: Yeah. No, that, that- – it's such a simple thing, but like oh, just not not to say like oh we're, we're such geniuses we're picking up like, picking up on this, but like a lot of just movies don't put that kind of thought into shot composition of like something like oh, a character having a breakdown or whatever. Um, yeah. and, and just like not using the spaces that they're filming in to, to their fullest extent like this. Yeah, it, uh, It's such a small, easy thing to miss, but people miss it. Filmmakers just don't take advantage of their spaces so often.
1: I think I love how Aronofsky is really like – he's using every fucking technique, like every everything that you can as a filmmaker to, yes. to come to a unified vision. And yes. it's like the music is going towards the story. The editing is going towards the story and mood. I mean obviously the music too, right? Like the music is huge. The sound design is huge. The camera angles, all of it, all of it is serving the story. It's serving the aesthetic. Everything is, like, going in the same... All the ships are sailing in the... Like, he's using every tool in his toolbox. Yeah. more. So. That's probably the better way to describe it.
0: That, yeah, that, no, that's true. Like, sound both diegetic and non-diegetic. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I... Just small throwaway shots like that little bird toy, just because it's such, like, a mathematically perfect thing to include. But, like, you, it's also something you would just happen to see on the street, so it works in both levels right. like that. Um, yeah, no, it, make, making full use of all aspects of the
1: media which for that like sixty thousand dollar budget you know what i mean like that's part of it right limitation drives necessity yeah exactly. oh yeah
2: well and also you know he has complete creative control uh as that's well true too. Yes. so you know he doesn't <laughs> no have studios. a studio telling him oh well you know here's some studio notes i think you should cut this or you should shoot it this way or you know an expectation of how things are shot and what kind of coverage they get for a scene um yeah he's able to just say fuck it this is what i want to shoot um, you know, I'm going to, I wonder, did he say anything on the commentary if you like storyboarded this film at all? He never mentioned anything about
1: storyboarding whatsoever.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine so, it's a very storyboarded film. It just seems so spontaneous. A lot of the shots, yeah. out, like a lot of external shots seem so spontaneous.
0: Yeah. I imagine some things like that sequence on the train platform had to have been very carefully, oh, at least pre-planned out in, in his head.
2: Right, um, any yeah. apartment stuff definitely. Yeah, that, the apartment's a constructed set.
0: Yeah, but certain certain things, certain um, certain of the more like I don't know, emotive kind of tableaus that, that 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 are that are like placed in between these different set pieces would would certainly just be more improvised.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think he definitely acknowledged again some of the stuff where they were going like the, the voiceover did help kind of that was like that can kind of help you know, make up for a lot of mistakes or things that you're not catching in inter- turn like on camera um, so that's kind of like that's why it's a crutch and that's why it's considered like poor filmmaking to you to rely on voiceover too much um, so that was there's definitely some of that Um just to like get, but Nick what's funny though is uh, he did mention production wise that like whenever they're shooting on the subway they're basically shoot okay so apparently at the time, I'm not sure whenever he even fucking recorded the the yeah. commentary track, but he was saying that it was something like eighteen thousand dollars to shoot on the subway. So they did they shot illegally on the subway, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. like overnight, like late at night. Yeah, yeah. And there was even a scene like the scene with the brain. Like they had a cop come over, and like turned out that like Woody Allen was shooting some movie as well, like nearby. So yeah. like I, they figured that the cop like figured they were just like a B unit or so, like that's, a second unit or something amazing. like that yes. on that movie. Cause he didn't have like, yeah, he didn't have, it was total gorilla, like no permits, et cetera, et cetera. And he like makes a couple of jokes throughout the director commentary to where it'll have like close ups of people on the street. And he's like, yeah, we got a, we got a waiver for all of these people,
0: <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> um, which is pretty funny. One of my favorite examples kind of kind of related to this um idea of like film, filming when you can like where you can um when kevin smith was shooting clerks uh he worked at that store or the uh. location and they had to shoot at night because yeah. like he would be working there right during the day. yeah um and so they would have to close the the metal shutters to the door or like, to the windows outside but the movie takes place during the day so their example in the script is oh it's stuck because this place is so <laughs> shitty it's open. yeah and, like it that just that idea of like being faced with these challenges on a product where you have total control and coming up with like creative, but like believable, good reasons for these limitations. Um, Yeah. No, I think it just speaks to the power of like lower budget gorilla, gorilla productions like this.
2: Yeah. You know, and, and because, you know, we shoot on digital now, these kind of films are definitely still getting made. This is the, The problem is that these kind of films are just not getting seen because of distribution, right? You know, like uh, Pi made $3 million in theaters. Uh, You know, I don't know if we're going to see that happen ever again where a film that costs, you know, $60,000 even plays in a theater uh, or enough theaters to get you know, a three million dollar box office haul.
1: Yeah, it might um, be straight to digital, or like you know, straight to stream, or something like that. Now, right, the margins and, are way less. Or- yeah,
2: exactly. You know, you you might be able to sell the movie to Netflix. Yeah, um, or Maybe. sell it to a distributor who can upload it to Amazon. But yeah, it's yeah, it's, that's a good point. It's going to be cult stuff or word of mouth, I guess. You know, it's right. it's going to be harder to see these kind of films in theaters. It's a real bummer of the industry.
1: But I, I was going to like these symmetrical shots. I described the one on the subway platform, but there's another one with um, in the subway car that I really like too, and that has that same thing because, you know what I mean? You've got that very similar, like you've got that kind of cylindrical, it's not, you know, obviously not perfectly, but we know the shape of a subway car, right? And you've typically got, you know, you've got those two windows at the back and the door in the middle. And um, there's some just great, perspective or profile shots of him like riding the train or standing up on the subway and framed very perfectly very like symmetrically within within those doors or within that like little backdrop of the subway car that i really loved Uh, one of the another one of my absolute favorite shots is out on coney island and it's one where max is like kind of sitting down he's kind of like hunched over he's he's sort of in black um and we get that i don't know you know what that tower is called like the iron tower and very famous in Co- coney island it's very prominent in um right. requiem
0: yeah like I, i've it's I, definitely it's I, like a
1: coney island landmark i I don't even know what the name of it is but it's kind of like this iron structure um as in like it's like in the right-hand side of the frame. He's very kind of smaller, hunched over in the bottom like left-hand corner. Just like a really cool looking shot. It looks looks really nice. One of my faves. Another one that I really loved was, it was whenever I think he installs the new CPU into Euclid. And so the lighting or the way that things look, it's our typical like dark, very contrasty, kind of mise en scene, and then he installs the new CPU and flips the switch, and we then we get this like overexposure, and everything's very bright. And he and we the camera again is positioned from behind Euclid, which is which is often the case, which is often a it's a great framing device for Max. We oftentimes see him framed by that little like CPU box, and um, but this was it was a little bit different. It's almost like that overexposure. This is where he sort of comes into contact with the divine or like, you know what I mean? It's like that, that light switch, that Eureka moment almost, right? Like literally physically displayed with, with this light bulb, this overexposure mm-hmm. coming on.
0: Also the the correlation of the light bulb with like, a, a, with some sun imagery. Cause um, he, as we, as we hear in his voiceover, he, he damaged uh, yeah. his eyes as a kid looking at this literally. literally staring at the sun.
2: Right. Yeah. No, I, the overexposures are great and real. Um, real use of the, the medium, you know, shooting on film, you can get those overexposures. Um, sometimes you're not even trying to get those overexposures. <laughs> right. Sometimes it just happens uh, yeah. because, uh, with film, you really have to, you know, think carefully about your light and your lighting placement. But, um, yeah, I know I, uh, some people really don't like overexposures in film, but I, you know, this is the perfect, uh, use of it. And, uh, or, you know, in the previous film we all reviewed together, uh, Last Year in Marion Bad, there's those washed out uh, right. overexposures, and, you know, they're intentional. There's a reason behind them thematically.
1: Yeah. I, I thought it, it worked really perfectly for, I don't know, the, the thematic moment, the visual moment, it, it was great there. Some of the chase scenes through, like, the subway corridors I thought were fantastic as well. They were, like, almost reminding of, like, a charcoal or, like, Again, comic book ink, but I don't know. There's something like just the, that graininess of the film stock and like all the shadows and the pace of it. I don't know, it was just fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about this much, but I think there are elements of horror that are built in the film a little bit, right? Like it's, I wouldn't call it a horror film per se, but like it does have, I feel like the character like in particular of, What's her name? Is it Marcy Dawson, right? Yes. She very at least early on, she's um. What's the word? Like she's not necessarily antagonistic, but towards the end, like there's this confrontation where they're she's like chasing them down and like her goons are running after him. I think yeah, it's actually I think the scene I was just referring to where they're kind of running through the subway tunnels and etc. Um, but like so Max like hi- hides and crawls underneath a car, and then we get this fucking creepy ass scene <laughs> where like the two goons have like run off but we get her like feet come up to the <laughs> right um so you just see her like feet are like cut off with the ankle and we're from looking at them, them matt's pov and then she like bends down
0: it yeah. looks
1: creepy as fuck <laughs> yes
0: I, I always appreciate when a movie, oh man isn't too constrained by by genre yeah, and it can kind of ha- like have this bleed over between different um, different styles and different like moods and everything, and th- the horror aspects were definitely felt. Um,
1: yeah, she was scary as fuck. Like yeah, her teeth yeah. being so like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just gleaming. Just yeah. those like, like Cheshire creepy fucking grin, and gleaming it was just, like, fangs. Yeah, in the
0: dark, just because the whole the whole scene here is like really shadowy. Um, yeah the, like filming action is always, is always like a tricky prospect for a for an amateur shoot i think yeah um but th- the the chase scene felt visceral didn't feel kind of too fake or anything it, it
1: oh, i loved it, it, it at like, least visually it was
0: fucking like well i am speaking beautiful. like strictly visually it can be so easy to bungle just like oh it's a we're gonna have like these very like untrained amateurs <laughs> yeah. just like run and chase each other oh to yeah
1: go, I definitely <laughs> to fight.
0: It it could have been awful but it the, the stylization and just the shot choices and the editing definitely made it work.
1: Some of the shots of the, I haven't talked about this at all yet, but the shots of the Go board were incredible. Even just like whenever there weren't weren't any actual Go stones or pieces on the board, um, Aronofsky said that what they did is they actually hung the camera above the board to get those shots. So you'll see, and I think, there was one in particular. I mean, all, a lot of the go board shots, fantastic. Nick called out the one with the spiral pattern with the blacks and whites that's really great. Yeah. Um, but there's one where there's like not any, even any pieces on oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the board. And you sort of start out and it's like one of those, some of the gridding in, on the go board, like there are points that are emphasized at like, so you have like these bigger quadrants, we'll say maybe, might be the closest I can come to. expressing it but like there's there's little quadrants that'll be outlined by those points yeah so we start off on one of those and then it kind of like cuts to a wider shot of the go board above i don't know there and aronofsky even mentioned this too in the director's commentaries there's just something like there's something very visually satisfying about that gridding. yeah um
0: it's like every every so often some of the intersections have like circles around around where the the lines intersect Um, yeah I don't know I don't even know how to play Go but I I want (laughs) to learn now
1: I've been wanting a Go board for like ever since I saw this movie and I've never (laughs) bought one so I think maybe now is the time
2: yeah it
1: yes definitely another fantastic moment and this is where like in the editing room I think is where this shot really came or really like was pulled was like taken to the next level it was it was the scene whenever Max like throws away one of the printouts that he's getting for that it's like he thinks it's an error maybe at first, so he he's like in the park and he throws it away he crumbles up the paper, throws it away. And then later on he's coming back for that same piece of paper and he, he's like digging through the trash and um a couple so I guess there's a couple of things in the scene. One is the landlord pulls up on him basically and she's like watching him dig in the trash and she's like yes. has this completely <laughs> disgusted look but what's great is she has those like huge like old lady sunglasses like, the big, like old school yeah. like 70s yes. Yes. just huge sunglasses and they're so black like she almost looks like a, a bee or something with those giant the film grain and like black and white element I don't know there's something other unsettling about it or like Otherworldly, or I don't know. There's another kind of like creepy kind of vibe to to the whole thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one of my favorite images or, or bits of imagery is um, when the Orthodox Jews wrap the phylacteries around their yeah. arms and everything, um, and the box that's written on sheepskin just looks just like the Ming Mecca um, chip that he gets. Oh yeah. Okay. It, I didn't even notice. Oh, that oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a black cube. Yeah. Like because yeah. Because the phylactery they the. Orthodox are, are more traditional um, Jewish people. When, like when they're doing their morning prayers, they wrap these strips of leather on their arms and their heads. And that box of the scripture is stuck on their on their forehead because it reminds them, "Oh, keep the law in your mind at all times." Um, yeah, and and when he's when Max gets the Ming Mecca um, is essentially like a super high-powered microchip, but it's in this black cube that looks just like the the um, the scripture box.
1: Right. Back to that trash can scene. So like, okay, after the landlord comes and like he's trying to explain, I'm, I, I lost something. I'm looking at my, I lost my data. Yeah. I lost my fucking data. It's it like, sounds
2: very <laughs> sane. And is exacerbated, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> completely exacerbated by that scenario. Um, but what's great is the camera like lingers on this metallic metal, like iron fucking wrought trash can.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it just lingers there for like a little while without anything going on without any dialogue or anything. And I don't know, just, it looks so fucking cool because it almost has these, um, they're not, maybe like a hexagram sort of style, like grading to it. I don't know, something about it just looks fucking cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another shot I really liked, I think it's the the second of the three times that Max talks about how he, staring at the sun blinded him as a kid briefly. And he's standing on a street and the, the camera's kind of spinning around him. Yes. Yes. There's this uh, glass sheathed like office building behind him, and the sun is reflecting off of it. So you see the sun, reflection of the sun in the glass, but his his face his his face and his head in silhouette are blocking that sun. So he mentions like, "Oh, oh yeah." And I stare at the sun. It's and like, like a corona. Yeah, it's like the corona the the corona reflection from the sun. It it comes out right where his eyes are. Yes. It's, it's just like masterful blocking and um, positioning of elements within the frame.
1: I was like, I was literally just about to, that was the next, oh, yeah. that was the last uh, <laughs> shot that I was gonna call out was that silhouette moment. Oh, yes. That is so fucking great, but like, yeah, in terms of like, it's like, there's this silhouette moment where the, again, yeah you know, like that, I guess he's being backlit by the sun <laughs> technically and that like light is kind of out, he's got this weird like halo outline from the light of the sun, that just yeah. looks fucking incredible. Uh, but the camera work there was so good. And again, another example of like how he's using camera and he's using editing to like create this very like physically, like the film had, takes a physical toll on you to some degree with like these very like harsh sound design, some of the harsh music, the editing, the different speeding up the frame rates, um, slowing down some of the frame rates, et cetera really like we said earlier, just like using every single like tool in the fucking toolbox. Any other shots that uh, that caught your eyes, Louis? Um, well, I did
2: mention the, uh, the bird toy, but um, I didn't, I guess to go into that shot a little bit more, I, I really enjoyed that shot. Cause it, you know, it starts with this Asian man and you don't really know if it is a real bird or a bird toy at first when he throws it in the air, but then the camera, it's all one shot. The camera follows the bird toy in the sky and then it comes back around and follows it as it it, as this bird toy is the man catches it again and like it's i I don't think it's a different frame rate in the middle but like it does feel like it just i guess because you know it's this toy in the air it's just like floats for a second but then it you know comes back down quickly um yeah it's just it's a great shot and really doesn't have to be there but
1: um i'm glad he included it very well could have been intentional with the frame rates because he definitely that was definitely done on a number of different shots he probably didn't go into like every single one that he did again the the ones with the tree leaves in particular and where he's observing them he definitely played around with those and i think there's maybe some of the smoke scenes and other scenes like that some of the cutaways and like macro cutaways and and right are definitely uh fucked with in terms of frame rate but we can go ahead and, and delve into writing next and i think in terms of writing maybe well like i said i don't know if the, the dialogue is maybe the weakest element and but not in every in every scene um okay. that archimedes st- story yeah is one of my favorites uh i don't know that i don't know why i just love that fucking scene on its own is just like a great scene mm-hmm.
0: yeah it works um, it, it definitely yeah. speaks to the advantage of like acting prowess in a movie just because like uh, you know a more, a more veteran character actor like Margoas could sell dialogue right. better than yeah. um, some sort of less, it's true. less experienced actors but, mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I think it just gets back to like my idea that writing dialogue where you try to teach the audience something tell them a story kind of Represent, give, give some, give some kind of delivery or, or like, like representation of like a mathematical concept. These these things are very tricky to do, uh, without it coming off as clumsy. Yeah. Um, and to 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 Pi's credit, it does do some of them well. It's just, it, I, I think it's unavoidable to some extent. It's like, oh, this is what the golden ratio is. This is what the the spiral means. But um, Aronofsky is able to get around that just because like he can show these things visually it's like specifically the spiral and the and the, the golden ratio rectangle can be shown on sc- like max is actually drawing them so that he, yeah he's able to get some leeway show
1: there. don't tell yeah
2: good call um yeah and i think if it was like a slower film if it you know the editing wasn't as frenetic and we didn't get that just that jumble of images during those moments of you know voiceover I think it wouldn't work. Like if it was a really slow, you know, uh, if it had a student, if it's, it has a student quality film, but if you had even more of a studio, uh, student quality, student film quality to it, like if it was a slower student film quality, uh, I think it would just really draw your attention to, how clunky some of the dialogue is, and and why the voiceover is placed where it is. Yeah. But because you're just being assaulted by all these <laughs> images, and you know all these different techniques and these camera angles and this gorgeous black and white photography, you know, there's there's something else to draw your attention away
1: from what is yeah, sporadically sometimes clunky dialogue. One thing that's funny about the Archimedes story is Aronofsky said that he his father told him that story, and it just like stuck in his head which I thought was really funny because that scene stuck in my <laughs> stuck in my <laughs> head. Um, so I thought that was amusing. Um, some of the just like little craft notes that I like gleaned from listening to the director's commentary I thought were good. Like if you're thinking about this in terms of screenwriting. So one of those elements is the little girl that he encounters early on and like asks him to solve the math problem. And then he does like, that's such a perfect little way, and like Aronofsky called it out. Like, this does a couple of things. It, it sets up his ability as a mathematician, and it also is like inviting a sympath- It's painting him as a sympathetic character with the little girl, um, because like he's like the, he's friendly to this little girl. He's he's sort of entertaining her uh, questions, and like with this trick thing. Even though like yeah, he's working on this very like esoteric mathematical shit, and this is just like a neighbor kid that he could have just like brushed off and said, Oh, I'm, I'm busy. I don't have time, right. but he like entertains her and he does that. And like, it's visually too. So like, that's another great, very good filmmaking moment in there is whenever he gives her the answer. And then you see, see the answer on whenever he's giving the answer, you're seeing the child's perspective of the calculator that's showing like that. So I don't know. I just thought that was a great like screenwriting thing to call out.
0: Yeah. And also, um, kind of Max's reaction to his his hot neighbor. Like yeah. the way like the way he's the way he's like I don't know, he's I, got that Arthur Fleck vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> he does very much. He's not super into her, but it's just like it's enough that like oh, this person I see I see her regularly and yeah. she's kind of like a presence in my life, but like I sh- I I should find her attractive, but like I I need I my mean numbers like
1: <laughs> I lost my data.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um yeah, no, it it, it works. It's like Appropriately awkward and stilted. Yeah, um, which is a big, a big vibe, as they say.
1: Another kind of screenwriting note is, uh, at least according to Aronofsky, says that the Euclid crash or blackout is the end of Act One, and also like dri- introduces the drill, which will come in at the end for the trepan, trepancy. Yeah, I like the introduction of the drill. It was really like
2: Chekhov's drill. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of <laughs> yes. forgot about that entirely, that w- what he does with the drill yes. at the end, but I was like, oh, I bet that, that'll be important later, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, one of those handheld drills in the shape of a gun, so like, yeah, Chekhov's drill gun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he says that the third act starts whenever his na- neighbor finds him on the floor, and I think that's where the landlady and some of the other, neighbor yes. and maybe the boyfriend of the neighbor yeah. perhaps, or they'll, they,
0: yeah, they they'll come in. Um, the landlady choose them out for having locks on the doors that aren't approved and she's going to kick them out.
1: What about other writing screenwriting points? Anything on, on your mind? Either of you?
0: um Um, the man he hallucinates in the subway to i think it's in the first act yeah um oh yeah yeah he he sings the song i only have eyes for you which is thematically again connected to max had almost burned his eyes out of his socket oh yeah um, smart from staring at the sun and yeah just the idea of like staring at the sun because it's so beautiful and like because (laughs) your mom tells you not to yeah that's uh, like 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 if we take like the sun to mean like like you're representative like knowledge or or god like Uh, well god which is knowledge from x just it's so intense that it just no one human can ever like can grasp it like you have to kind of look at it in the abstract or define it by its edges rather than looking at the full thing um the sun's just a very potent metaphor for that
1: i don't remember if they recount this in the i think they do a little bit talk about this in like so in jerusalem in the temple only like the high priest, I think, could go into the holy of holies, and there was the veil that basically, because the idea being that like if you saw, and like I guess the actual God would inhabit the inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Or, yes, like, it's,
0: it's something like on Yom Kippur, the holy holies, the Holy yeah. day of right. for, mm-hmm. for the Jewish calendar. Um, yeah, o- only only the high priest was allowed to go into this this the the chamber. Uh, and I, I think the idea is God does enter that chamber yes. just on that day, just for that time.
1: And But there's even the, – the veil is present because yeah. if you saw the likeness of God, like, you would be destroyed. It's almost like that Lovecraftian yes. element of, like, cosmic horror type.
0: And, like, Moses, when God appeared to him in the burning right. bush, he couldn't look at it directly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, the same the, vibe. Yeah, the idea that God is too
1: overwhelming. And um, But it, that Icarus – Callback too yes. as well.
0: Yes, and, right. and we've definitely alluded to the Jewish um, influence on in this movie because Aronofsky himself was raised Jewish, um, and and the idea of like Judaism as a very, like like numbers based um, tradition in a lot of ways, um, the Kabbalah aspects, the numerological Talmudic uh, language aspects are, are, are cited within dialogue uh, very extensively. Uh, yeah, I mean it all it all comes together in this nice like. And, and I, I think Aronofsky is very aware and conscious of like the the Jewish intellectual tradition. Oh like, yeah, absolutely. In the United States and like kind of even before um, the idea that like oh, I mean this is kind of like an anti-Semitic meme that's referenced, but like yeah, you know, all, all the like how many percentages of, of Nobel laureates are are, are Jews? Because like it there's a tradition of of scholarship that goes back um, to, to the Bronze Age essentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, it 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 is a it is a very real thing that exists, and like I've, I've just, anecdotally, I've known a lot of my Jewish friends like talk about that, and it's it's on their minds when they consume art that deals with these kinds of things.
1: Interesting. So Aronofsky said that he, I think after high school, went on a trip. He he was like a backpacking trip, and he first went to Israel, and he went to a kibbutz, mm-hmm. and he was working in this like factory or or some shit so he's like he worked there for like two days it was like this assembly line thing he's like fuck this he he like ran away basically (laughs) and he said he was walking i think along the i think it's the western wall it's talking about how there'll be all these like hasids or like orthodox jews out there and they'll like take you in and they'll like house you and feed you and all this shit but they they're very interested in like teaching you about the like Jewish mysticism or like mm-hmm. different elements of uh, Judaism or what have you. So that is like a direct experience that he had that yeah. he drew from yeah. for the film. Um, but onto some kind of miscellaneous things that I think all these are so great. Um, one in particular, like this was almost too on the nose, but the opening credits reminded me the music in particular sounded like the dust brothers song in the intro credits for fight club. It's almost like the exact same song and very similar to like in, in a way, sure, sure. Visually at least. Cause like in this film, like we're getting all like the numerals for pi are running and like all these kind of like geometric uh, symbols and, and things are going by um, that kind of like complements that weird like CGI trip we take through the body in the beginning of In the Fight Club opening credits. But the music too is like, I, after this, we're going to have to play this um, and, and see it. You'll see exactly what I mean. It's like very, like almost the same damn song. Randomly, uh, Clint Mansell, who did the score and who, like I said, has worked with uh, Aronofsky. He is the photographer- at the end of the movie, I don't know if you remember, he chased it, Max. Oh, he chases him. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Nice. So that was the Clint Mansell cameo. Max's apartment was this warehouse in Bushwick, which is in Brooklyn. Nice. Um, I already told the story about how character of Saul's tattoos, which was great. Uh, Coney Island makes an appearance, which is very heavily plays into Requiem. thought it was interesting that, like, I guess the... Sort of the cl- Is the climax of the movie whenever he drills into his skull or is that our denouement? Or-
0: I think the denouement is at the end when he's chilling with with the, the kid and like the- yeah, can't yeah, answer
1: should.
0: the... He just, um, he's like, I don't give it. I'm going one numbers. I do not care. I do not know.
1: So he, I guess, should describe in terms of the plot that Max eventually shaves his head and, I don't know, there's like this spot. He's got a scar in his head from something. It's never really... Right clear what it is but he like will often like use that injection gun to like try to like he's messing with it eventually he shaves his head and then like at the end uh, or towards the end he basically drills into his skull and at that point he's no longer haunted by this like math this by pie at all he's left to like he his insane mathematic ability That is, it's great too that it comes full circle in terms of story and writing because we start out early on the little girl, like I was saying, how that's kind of setting up Max's uh, mathematical ability and and some of the pathos there. But then it's, it's so it's very apropos that he finishes here and with that same like. And he's, this is the first time that we see a smile come from Max too. Whenever he sort of acknowledges he doesn't have that, the burden of of this like mathematical pie, insane like obsession that he's been dealing with throughout the course of the film, driving him insane.
0: I will say visually after he shapes his head, he kind of looks like um, Foucault, but also <laughs> Grant Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> Good call. Yes, definitely. And this is a huge stretch, uh, probably entirely coincidental but the the pattern of his little scar thing his little bulging vein oh yeah uh it looks like the same general shape as the crack in his mirror after he smashes his head in oh interesting like like a like a fork branching yeah kind of line huh. you know, sideways why hmm. but i mean I, that's probably just me going crazy <laughs>
1: You're looking for patterns. I am, yeah. Yes. You, you are you looking for the spiral them. pattern everywhere. You will see it
0: Exactly.
1: But as soon as you di- as soon as you abandon scientific rigor, you're no longer a mathematician. You're a numerologist. Yeah. That was
0: as my favorite line. That was- yeah, that's incredible. That was so great. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, another line I really liked. It's when Lenny is kind of haranguing him at the beginning when they first meet, like really annoying him and just like being really pushy, and he he he, he gives him this whole spiel like, oh. Father, dad, or father means this in in, uh, in oh, ancient yeah, right. Hebrew. Mother means this. Child it comes up to the same equation. <laughs> it's like I, I guess that's kind of interesting. Just like the way he says it is like I, I guess that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I thought it was funny. Like I don't know if you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Homer was very smart for a while, and then he sticks the cra- he like sticks the crayon in his brain. Yes. <laughs> whatever, and whenever yes. he removes it, then he goes back to being stupid. That's yes. kind of what the whole drill into the skull that's good yeah that's good. evoked for me that's good that's good <laughs> nice there were uh there were ant wranglers that did get credits for the film there were also
0: uh go advisors. go advisors
1: yeah go advisors i saw that the idea for the opening credits are supposed to represent or mirror max's headaches aronofsky's mom's best friend was portrayed the landlord <laughs> nice so they shot for 12 hours, they would shot, shoot for like 12 hours overnight in the subway to avoid having to pay and like get permits and shit. Yeah, I can only imagine that must be, yeah. The uh, phone continually ringing, he said, was an homage to Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, that makes sense.
0: Okay. It's also just a very relatable and like yeah. real, just constant sound. It, it works. Um, wretched up the tension
1: the trip ending scene um they did in one take and aronofsky did not divulge how they pulled it off well you can actually see they did what scene uh the drill scene where he drills into a skull that was a one take damn and he wouldn't elaborate on how the shot was actually done because we do see like it does make contact with something And it
0: looks like the right. actual drill too like I- yeah I, I don't know how what they did, how they pulled it off. Maybe he really cut himself or something. But like, I don't know. It
1: feels like maybe they would have used some type of like putty or like some kind of like I don't know, silicone app thing like on his skull. But right. like I don't know how you, which black and white may have like allowed them to hide really well. But I don't know. It's like it would have been hard to do. Maybe he actually did drill. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's most likely. Yeah. That
0: was the first scene they shot after. (laughs)
1: Ah,
0: Right. (laughs) And the scar is real.
2: Yeah. I mean, cause when he draws on his head, um, like it's definitely like a bald wig there. so. So I think so. Yeah. The way like the pen would like, indent into his head i just i i it just
0: seemed rubbery to me well see my thinking, um, my thinking was he really did shave his head but the first scene they shot after that was the drill scene and then they let it heal up <laughs> and then like every other <laughs> scene after that it was just like oh the scar's are already there i guess like chronologically it came before
1: but then he shapes his head oh yeah i get what you're saying all right Never mind. I, don't, I, don't know. <laughs> it's,
0: I mean, it's got to be some kind of
2: prosthetic. There's got to be something yeah. that he drills into, and that's then what I like thinking. the the right. angle at which it's filmed and the right. angle at which he drills into. And the editing, probably. And the editing, because yeah, then cause then it it cuts to the the
1: mirror and the blood spray on the mirror. Yeah. Um, yeah. That takes us to themes, unless either of you had any um, miscellaneous call outs or anything. Yeah, destruction
0: no nothing else I was kind of sprinkling in my observations throughout um, yeah. yeah oh I guess the the one thing is like when Max does find the 216 digit that's supposed to be the true name of God um, it does this zoom in on the screen just like into the middle of the massive numbers oh yeah which 314 314 is the number that we focus on yeah, which yeah.
1: that was awesome that was really good we can wrap up on on themes and thematic elements numbers <laughs> 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 What? So, <laughs> we're doing math today on the on the podcast, which sure. is a a rarely a rare thing. There was quite a few, and unfortunately, I can't. I mean, it's such a like. I wanted to spend some time like looking into Kabbalah to like fill in some of the background because even like Aronoff he, he says, you know, we just all the stuff, the math, and all of the Kabbalah shit is like legit, but they're like barely barely even scratching the surface on on how deep it goes oh sure and so i would have liked to have but like i even when i started to get into that like it was that would be like a huge project to learn yeah, yeah. oh yeah, for sure about the intricacies of kabbalah um so i did read there is a an article in fang numina that that uh nick land wrote about kabbalah but there really wasn't a whole lot um like it wasn't that relevant to the to the to really the analysis, I guess, overall, other than to say, like, yes, if you're curious about Nickland, Nickland has, like, some of this numerology and some of this, like, Kabbalistic, um, occultish stuff does show up in, in Nickland's work.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, like, the... Just, just because the, the Kabbalah numerology stuff, it, it's so... There's so much scholarship and there's so much writing about it. Like, I, I think this movie hit the limit of what you can introduce in into a... An art narrative like without it just being a slideshow essentially because um, we, we do have we do have those scenes of, of Lenny and, and max together or, or just max talking to to the rabbi um, group where like they, they they do as much exposition as they can while still being in character without it beating you over the head like just just directly telling you things um, any anymore you know it, 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 would have detracted from the flow of the movie I think
1: yeah I just I don't know I just think some of the stuff is interesting to look at from like a semiotic yeah. you know, angle or lens or like also like some of this shit this is very much like in that Aronofsky did kind of mention like this is sort of a cyberpunk film and it very much kind of like fits in that like Nick Landian like kind of like CCRU accelerationist e yeah. like we're kind of in that in that ballpark and again even like some degree in like within the ballpark of like Deleuze and Guattari too because of like the element of like schizophrenia and how that sort of plays into like schizoanalysis with with Deleuze and Guattari but also like land is taking that even further and making shit really weird and like mixing this with like Cthulhu and Kabbalah and numerology and fucking weird and occult shit in particular to that end early on in the movie max is kind of he's it's a soliloquy it's a um or speech where he's sort of talking about how there's all these patterns in nature and what if what if there were patterns in the stock market he's talking about how the stock market is essentially it's capturing the behavior of like all of humanity or like this huge group of humanity and it has sort of this organic element to it which i think it does like it absolutely does because it's getting like you know at the end of the day it is it's derived from the material it's derived from the interactions between all of humanity right like the exchanges etc etc right but with capitalism taking on this like organic like it, it having its own sort of logic is very much like this acceleration description or understanding of what capitalism is and having this almost like demonic or occultish sort of element to it where it's it's sort of escaped the capacity of, of humanity itself and is taking on its own it's developing its own sort of like emergent logic or emergent behaviors out of its own like kind of derived from like the actual interactions of humans. but now it's this is the AI. Yeah. this is how AI is really operating is, is this sort of like algorithm of capital.
0: And there's a clear parallel between the capital interest and the religious in- interests because they both want the number yes. from, from Max for ostensibly different reasons. But like, if you, if you view like, Oh, originally there was religion and there, that was man's attempt to, or humanity's attempt to like wrangle the forces, like the chaotic forces of the universe around them into something that's comprehensible to create order. <laughs> yes. And then, if you, if you go to like corporate interests, which is like the the, the, the stock market or like also the economy is-, is Supposedly like, chaotic, right? Yes, but, but that comes from us because we created it. Yeah. So like humanity is just this, at this intersection between these two forces that come, that in some sense came, like predated us in some, and then the other one, which in some sense came after us.
1: Um, the sacred and profane sort of element to it or sure. like that yeah. dichotomy between, uh, let's see, what did I, sort of the- Sort of this group, the gritty materialism of capitalism, and the divine. Yes, and that's where Max is like caught at that intersection. He's like being pulled apart by these like two warring factions. And the ultimate
0: synthesis of that visually, I think, is the Ming Mecha chip that he gets because it's it's this cutting edge, technically still illegal. He shouldn't even have it chip for his for Euclid's computer, but also it, it visually just looks like the the. That he ties on himself when he's with Lenny at the at the synagogue.
1: I think one cool thing too that it's interesting to look at is, and I don't I don't know if this is true. I would love to know this, the factuality of that statement that no two Go games have ever been the same. Right. Because this notion of like of an of order and chaos and like deterministic things and patterns and everything, right? So that very much plays into. So like there even even if in even in a fully deterministic universe, there can be chaos. Like they're not necessarily um order and chaos are not necessarily opposed, or like maybe not order and chaos, but determinism and chaos are not necessarily uh mutually exclusive. Like they can, like you can have even in a hundred percent determined universe there can still be unpredictability there can still be chaos and i think that's a great metaphor for like if the go board does really really represent that like in actuality i don't know i think that's extremely that's really fascinating but like the idea of that the theme of that is is really cool too and i think really applies to like the universe and like cosmology if you start to go in that direction and
0: And also just visually the the go pieces are, are black and white dots, and this movie is made up of black and, and there's, white dots. And
1: there are circles as well, which is like what is the symbol for? What's a, like the mathematical symbol? It's like the circle with the dot in the middle. Is that a type of infinity, or is-
0: it seems almost like a like, it lends like it like it would be an alchemical symbol? And that's some that's a kind of a an archetype I was thinking of while I was watching the movie. Um, there's heavy like alchemy vibes from from Max as he's looking for this equation. Because like I, I think of like the idea of, of the magnum opus as it relates to literal ancient alchemists in, in the real world attempting to find um, the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone, to transform any base metal into gold, because that's what Max is trying to do. He's trying to find the equation that will change like the, the base, meaningless stream of numbers into something divine
1: for some reason I was thinking it was like a a different representation for infinity, but I don't, I don't think that it is. Um, it's some type of other, I mean, there's like infinite number of different applications of the way that the symbols used much like similar to the way that, you know, Greek letters are used in, Mm -hmm. in like advanced math basically. But for some reason I was thinking there was like a a tie into infinity for some reason.
0: Um, a circle dot. It is a sun, it is a solar symbol used to represent the sun too. Oh, and going to my going to my point, the alchemical um, the alchemical symbol for a circle dot is the sun in gold. So it does uh. play into that um, that idea. Which point. makes
1: sense. I mean, that's I like a lot of that's that occultish Kabbalah tradition is like right tied into that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I think even the uh, the cabal like there's there's different forms of Kabbalah. There's like the Kabbalah that starts with a K is like the specifically like the Jewish. And then there's the Kabbalah that starts with a Q that's like for the, for the Goyim. Yes. And I think there's even a different (laughs) spelling. So there's like a few different, because there's like the Hebrew version. There's also a Greek version as well. And um, the comic book series Promethea that Alan Moore did is supposed to be entirely like drawing from this, one of these Kabbalistic traditions.
0: Sure. And we were talking about anime a little bit earlier. Um, there's a lot of Kabbalok imagery in Neon Genesis Evangelion, especially at the end, especially the movie, but like throughout the show too.
1: Also like these little, like the refrain of the spiraling in the smoke and in the tree leaves and like in the, um, the Nautilus or the like little seashell he finds, kind of reminded me of like this this idea of like fractal, fractals and like yeah. fractal ontologies as well kind of playing like you know what I mean it's kind of like obviously it's not really discussed in the film too much but like kind of an interesting like area of the film that it kind of touches on Mm -hmm. but doesn't really speak about too much there's an interesting part of dialogue too I didn't mention this earlier but Saul talks about how the uh Euclid has sort of become self-aware of itself and that's why it's like trying to shut itself down or something
0: yeah Saul mentions that like His theory for what that was is right before a computer destroys, it becomes aware of its own silicon nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and spits out a stream of data about that before being destroyed. Um, Yeah, I mean, who knows? Could be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Also, too thought it was funny. Like, I don't know how much either of you know about like sigil magic or chaos magic, but I was wondering too. Whenever he, at one point, he burns the printout, and I was like wondering if. That was like a sort of a magical ritual that he was performing it's magical i mean
0: the great thing about this movie is like it's a magical ritual (laughs) but it's also practical because he just wants this number gone he wants to never find it again if he throws it out maybe he could dig it up again so it it functions on both levels
1: oh uh maybe we can wrap up on this is the the presence of the ant within Mm -hmm. the ostensibly sealed off case that the cpu is in for euclid and then the organic substance as well that is like this weird sludge that's on on the circuitry and and shit like that yeah i don't think aronofsky goes into why the ants are present but it's like wondering okay did the is this okay is it a representation of bugs in the machine or is there something like more um to it as far as like is this machine creating like is life being are the ants being generated by the computer is it creating organics material like what the fuck is that about like where are the ants coming from because if you notice like whenever he removes the case to, the, to Euclid, to where the CPU is, mm-hmm. there's almost like, you can hear the sound effect of like, there like there's a, it's sealed, it's a sealed oh, box. Oh, it's a like, vacuum seal, yeah, vacuum that's tray, right. right. So how the fuck did ants, how would have ants like that size have been able to get inside the machine?
0: And I'm sure it's metaphorical to some yeah. degree, but also, I mean like, there's there's kind of like that gooey viscous stuff he finds on the wires after you could yeah, like, yeah sound like that too it gets really lynchian and like these things are tangible but they're not real like like they they they're rep- they're representative and symbolic but like they maybe they're not there and kind of doesn't really matter because he thinks they're there and that's that's what's important that, that that's that means more than things that are actually that, that he doesn't notice but um yeah, I don't know. I mean, he clearly to some degree the ants are real because he does kill a few like he or it looks like, I guess, yeah, wranglers, right? at
1: least within yeah. the within the logic of the film. I don't know if they're necessarily d- supposed to be delusional.
0: Yeah,
1: right, right. I just wondered if either of you had a good, t- a good take on that. Mm,
2: I just want them to be real. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just want the Euclid to be creating bugs. And then, uh, yeah, the the weird like semen stuff. That <laughs> and that'd be like a whole like subplot that he just excised from the film.
0: I mean, he does get a drop of semen and he does the microscope on it.
1: <laughs> oh, made, yeah, that's right. And then he
0: sees the, the swirl and that's kind of like what gives him his, his, his um, epiphany, I guess.
1: Yeah. I think that wraps up. That kind of took care of all of my notes on the movie, unless either of you had anything else that you hadn't expressed yet. Uh, I don't think so. If not, I'll let you, who, whomever wants to pitch or uh, drop your uh, plugs, rather not pitch.
0: <laughs> I have my pl- I have the plugs pulled up. I'll just go through them really quickly. Oh, um, good. Yeah, I always forget.
1: <laughs> so. Really on the plug. Really yum the plug.
0: <laughs> so on Patreon, we're um, patreon.com com slash pro underscore con. Um, on Twitter, you can find us at proletarianc, that's no spaces. Uh, Facebook.com, uh, proletarian contrarian, no spaces. And on Instagram, we are proletarian.contrarian with no spaces. Follow us, and you can, you can see uh, our cute, Louis' cute cat, Celeste, who is our mascot. On Instagram, um, we do some, a couple hot takes on Twitter every so often. And um, on all those things. Um, also, if you just want to look us up on SoundCloud, you can just find us easily, Proletarian Contrarian, on SoundCloud.
1: And I, ha- I have done an episode of ProCon on Dune. Yes. And with yes. hey with with guest month coming up, does that mean or, are we gonna? Am I going to come on, come back on? We might have given that thought.
0: Yes, we might have to actually. Yeah,
1: we could definitely do that.
0: Um, so there's we'll, there's we'll five, got a couple of movies
1: that we can. We have got at least two. Really good ones that we could do.
0: I know one of them you recommended was the the Return to Oz.
1: Oh yeah, the that one sequel. too. That's a, yeah.
0: yeah. Which would be which would, which would be fun. Um, oh
2: yeah, I love Return to Oz, Walter Murch film. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: great. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, fine. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Coop did
1: mention it. Uh, D- uh, Dorothy gets uh, electroshock therapy. It's just a cre- yeah. it's a creepy ass movie. Yeah. It's real creepy. It freaked me out as a kid. Uh, definitely didn't have like the playfulness, even though like the first movie had some dark shit to it. But like the overall tone is like nothing like. Oh yeah, it's the like same, it, yeah. it's
0: like fairy tale darkness. It's not like real.
1: Yeah,
2: no, this one's just like straight up dark. Yeah, it right. uh, it uh, it bombed at the box office because people were not expecting it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: that makes
2: sense.
0: Procon classic, right there.
1: <laughs> uh, but for listeners, uh, if this is your first time checking out the show, uh, you can find my twitter feed at unconscious hh the instagram account is at unconscious hh again on patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash m-u-h-h but thanks so much to you both this will be machinic unconscious happy hour signing off for the week
0: yeah thanks for having us again yeah good thanks Thanks for having me good discussion yes the ultimate form of security, which is how can to the whole state of things in view of violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there uh, is a burden of the will point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
1: What I did mean is the following. Please. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.